Hi, I'm Dr. Penelope Elix. I'm the Medical Director at the Medical Council of New South Wales. I'm also a GP and I've spent over 13 years as a GP here in Sydney. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of doctor self-care, the value of having your own treating practitioner and the services available to doctors. We will also bust some myths about the role of treating doctors and what happens if a doctor is the subject of a notification related to their health. Joining us today with his take on doctor self-care is Dr. Michael Bonning, Australian Medical Association's New South Wales President. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Penelope. Uh, Great to be here. Michael, as well as serving as President for the AMA New South Wales, you're also a GP practising in Sydney's Inner West. Can you start by telling us why this is such an important conversation to have? I think the thing that doctors often forget is that they're human too. And because of that, they end up in this place where they've got access to lots of services. So they do lots of things for themselves or they get lots of back channel stuff from colleagues, you know, the the old corridor consult or corridor conversation that they use to manage their healthcare. Now, The point of all of this is that when you think about managing anyone's healthcare, you need objectivity, you need some distance, and you also need someone who thinks about you as a whole person, not just whatever's going on today, which means that having a, you know, a pathway into your own doctor's care, so doctor's, you know, self-care, as well as um, a, a treating team around you when you need them is the reason why this is so important because otherwise we end up in this kind of devolving cycle of, well, it's just a little bit worse and then I, you, know, you end up with something that's a little bit worse again. A little bit, and by the time you actually see uh, in a professional relationship, a treating practitioner, you're in real trouble. I think that idea of having your doctors available, your team available for when problems arise rather than having to find it when you need it. What are those problems that doctors are facing or facing more often perhaps than the rest of the population? I think we always start with this idea that like any patient in primary care, we'd see them once or twice a year. It's not at all about people needing to be seeing doctors or their doctor really regularly. It's much more about you have a baseline, you understand what normal is, you understand what well is for someone that both goes for yourself as the patient as well as for the treating doctor who knows you. You know, I'm a GP who looks after lots of doctors and medical students and retired doctors as well. And what we know is that having a good grounding in the person person-centred care allows us then to understand when things are pushing us in different directions. If we start early on, the lead up, the you know exams, whether they be at medical school or in specialty training, the the transition into kind of independence practice. But from there, we, you know, we add in all the normal things. We add kids, we add relationships, we add parents getting older, we add uh, the stress of the job once again as we're becoming the fullest part of our career. And then bring everything else together, which is your own health, because while we are financially advantaged by doing this job, we are often time poor and we often take a lot of our own health for granted. And so when we do that, then suddenly, you know, it's often when something goes wrong that people seek care, when in actual fact, the best thing to do is for someone to keep us well uh, as we, you know, as we progress through that career. So the Medical Board's Good Medical Practice, the Code of Conduct for Doctors in Australia, recommends that doctors seek, and I quote, independent, objective advice when you need medical care and being aware of the risks of self-diagnosis and self-treatment. 
So, Michael, why is it so hard for doctors to seek that medical advice? And what are those real risks arising from self-diagnosis and treatment? There's a lot of what goes into being a doctor, which is this pursuit of excellence, uh, competence, clinical practice, which we then sometimes overlay onto our own health. We say, well, we should be excellent and we should be competent. And they actually form really big cultural barriers to mm. what we should be doing for ourselves, which is you know, having you know, regular, objective, independent medical care. We tie that in with things like workload and also working hours that aren't often aligned with getting access to medical care, which means that you know, many doctors do end up having non-objective care. You know, they're either doing things for themselves or they're doing things, um, you know, asking a colleague for some advice or even yeah. even worse, asking a colleague just for a script or something like that, which really takes the whole person and boils it down just to, you know, a very small sliver of their, you know, of their healthcare needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get into the really problematic space which is where we go beyond that and we start just people self-prescribing because Mm. they say well it's just this one thing and then it's just another thing and then it becomes a habit and lots of times I as a doctor who sees lots of doctors ends up trying to break those habits in people in their 40s 50s and 60s who have done this most of their life and career and they've now gotten to a point where their health care is too complex to be something that they self-manage. Mm. I think it's really important to sort of step into that space as a a patient doctor in that a lot of doctors are nervous about what's going to happen in the room, how the the treating doctor is going to talk about things. Do we have to use medical jargon? Can I just talk easily about everything? So there's a lot of apprehension, I think, for a lot of doctors. And that's certainly what, you know, the evidence supports in that finding that balance between being able to just be a patient versus thinking that you have to maintain some sort of doctor air to the consultation. And in fact, you know, as you and I would both appreciate having doctor patients in the past and yourself currently, that I find it much more easy to just say right at the beginning, I'm going to treat you like any other patient. We might use a bit of jargon here and there, but we're not going to do this differently. And really sort of settling that apprehension right at the get-go, isn't it? There's a really wild expectation, I think, that most doctors have for themselves that even outside their own field, they will really deeply understand a topic. Mm. You know, you're a, a surgeon and we're talking about, you know, your psoriasis. Those two things aren't things that necessarily you would have been taught during your specialty training. People often are relying on their own knowledge from medical school, which can be 20 or 30 years out of date and not up to date with where we are with contemporary practice. And they're trying to make decisions about what to do next. And we're like, well, there's there's better options. uh, There's better pathways for that. Coming back to having a consultation with your own GP, it should feel really comfortable. Like finding fit with someone, it's not just about do they know the medicine, it's someone you feel comfortable discussing things with. General practice especially and having a GP as a starting point is a lot about narrative medicine. You know, we are talking, we are uh, unearthing and kind of finding the intersections of things in your life, whether they be social, whether they be emotional, whether they be physical, whether they be mental uh, health related, all of those things have to fit together to understand the person. And so without finding someone that you're really comfortable talking to, it can be really difficult. So we want that to be the starting point uh, of these kinds of consultations. 
So, Michael, I think a lot of doctors would then say, well, how do I find that doctor? Can I just see the bloke down the end of the corridor? Who's going to see me as a patient? What would you say to that question? When you have an inbuilt relationship already that comes from outside a, a clinical therapeutic lens, I think that is always a little bit of a concern because there is a limit to the objectivity that you can have with someone who's already a close colleague or friend I know for people who have come to me and said oh can you be my GP and I'm like look we've actually already got a relationship outside of work so I can't be that person but I can give you lots of options and one of the things that your colleague in the practice might be able to give you is someone else outside like it it doesn't have to be a world that's shut off from you to talk to someone else in your practice but it shouldn't be the part of organised, defined clinical care that's going on from them. I know the AMA does a lot of work, though, in in helping doctors find doctors that are happy treating other doctors. Can you talk a little bit about the service that you run? The Doctors for Colleagues program has been something I've been really involved with for a long time, but so are hundreds of other colleagues around the state and something we want to grow. We want to continue to make it more and more accessible because Looking after other doctors is still a skill set. Even though we want to normalise the practice of seeing a doctor, we still need to think about the unique pressures, components and aspects of other doctors' lives and how that fits into how we deliver our care, how we think about the questions we ask, where we know where certain boundaries are in terms of what they do. So, The Doctors for Colleagues program has been something the AMA New South Wales has been really focused on over a long period and it's trying to make it accessible. Doctors who want to see other doctors as patients. It's also really important for medical students and doctors in training who move around quite a bit more that they can know that there is a network out there that allows them some access And that access is predicated on the fact that they are part of our profession. And so we want to be there to help them, especially given that if they are moving around, they will often be people who don't have a lot of other supports in that area. So if people are looking for that service, should they head to your website? The Doctors for Colleagues program is on the AMA New South Wales website. If you just search for it, it's an easy thing to find. Search Doctors for Colleagues and AMA New South Wales. And there's an up-to-date list there. We know that there are other programs around as well. And Mm. if you are someone who is thinking about this as part of your own care as a doctor, there are lots of services out there, many more than either of us can list. And one of the things to do is look out for those to try and find them because you're also looking for a service that people feel comfortable with you know there some people won't want to access certain parts of the system they may not want something that is through their employer Uh, it may well be much easier to go to an external service we're pretty lucky and we'll be linking certain organizations into the show notes for this podcast Doctors for Doctors program, obviously, that's national, but the New South Wales organisation is Doctors Health New South Wales, the Medical Benevolent Association in New South Wales and the ACT. And you're exactly right, those LHD kind of specific services that are really starting to pop up more and more. And I remember working in regional areas where this gets a lot harder. And, you know, we're talking about access to services. We're thinking about things like telehealth systems for 
people who want someone outside their own community because in smaller communities this is even harder you know there's you and someone else who works in town or there's only a few practices and you don't feel comfortable doing that I think the advent of really well distributed telehealth services around the country are now making or should be making this easier for people and you know within our own profession recognizing that a telehealth relationship with someone is still an important independent relationship to have. That may well not be everything that you need from your healthcare, but it's certainly a good starting point for those of us in the profession who are more isolated with terms of geography. So, Michael, I think we've really sort of celebrated the need for and the benefits of having your own GP uh, or your own treating team. Let's talk, though, about some of the more sensitive health issues which people are understandably nervous about raising and probably the one that comes to mind most is mental health concerns. Can you talk to me about your experience as a GP dealing with doctor patients who have mental health concerns, how you how you sort of handle that consult? I mean, even better, I can talk about myself as a patient. So, <laughs> you know, I used to work in the Royal Australian Navy as a medical officer and I saw some pretty challenging and complicated things uh, out on deployment. And that certainly was a real challenge to my mental health. And it's something that I think we all need to feel comfortable having an outlet for. You know, in, in my case, that was a GP and a psychologist mm. because you know, I was involved in things on Australia's northern borders. I was involved in things in the Middle East. And those are, those are really my specific experience of my own mental health as a medical practitioner. But we also know that medicine attracts people who are highly conscientious, who are highly task orientated, who are very focused on perfectionism. You know, Mm. those are traits that often lead us towards anxiety that when we don't achieve the way we thought we would, it can lead us to to depressive episodes. Those are really common things within the population as a whole, but are often magnified within the pressured area of medicine. And so recognising that those are normal things to Mm. start with is probably where this conversation begins because everyone seems to say that there is some significant difference between my ingrown toenail and my mental health condition. Actually, from the point of view of a treating doctor, they are just part of you, the patient. Mm. They don't, under those circumstances, because you're someone showing insight and coming to see us and wanting to talk about these things, you're someone who is actually doing the most protective thing for yourself and also for the patients around you, rather than just trying to get on with things and just push these, you know, these feelings, these emotions down because they do have impacts on the way in which we think about patient care. They do have impacts on us with regards to burnout and with regards to emotional exhaustion. And those are things that we can't put back into our clinical care unless we obviously deal with them in our own self-care. What sort of tips would you give for how to create that space to allow that conversation to happen freely and and openly? Like most consultations, uh, if we barrel into it under time pressure with trying to make it a, a laundry list of problems in any consultation, we'll often do a disservice to many of them. Whether we are opening a, a consultation or a conversation about mental health I usually like to book long appointments to start with understanding them as a person and I think we find our way there. Like with most 
patients, you're trying to build a therapeutic relationship and that yeah. involves understanding the person as a whole. We aren't defined by our diagnoses where the patient is the person who has the condition rather than just being very focused or obvious about the condition itself. And, and that's how I choose to think about this, that mm. they, this is just a part of their life, just like there are many other things that contribute to our feelings of whether it's self-worth or, or concern for our, for our own selves. You know, it's, it's a makeup of our physical, our mental, our emotional, our social components of our lives. And so opening the door on that often takes a while. So having a longer-term relationship rather than engaging in crisis... Yeah. Is, you know, is the way in which we seek to try and do this. And from my point of view, that's about, as a practitioner, scheduling something semi-regularly. But from the point of view of the patients that I see, what I understand from them is that this will be the last thing on their list that they want to talk about. Often the entry point will be another more accessible, mm. you know, if I put uh, inverted commas around that, accessible condition that they need to discuss. Lower back pain, menorrhagia, uh, some sports injuries, mm. and we'll work our way from those things to mental yeah. health. And I think as well as highlighting that need for ongoing care and building that relationship is also just giving a little bit of, you know, using that trick of normalising it as well too, to be able to say, hey, look, we know that we're more susceptible to these sorts of problems because of A, B, C and D. That's something we can talk about here, if you like. Opening the conversation and, and, and giving permission to talk about it, I think is sometimes what people need some support with. What I see in practice is that patients who are doctors will come and will have these kind of open discussions, but there will be something that is very obviously being held off the table and that's because there's a worry about mandatory notifications. Mm. Now, that's certainly something I try and reassure my patients about, but I know, Penelope, this is your area of expertise. So I think covering that is something that everyone out there is really – that's their highest level of concern is about what does mandatory notification incorporate. It's such a, a common anxiety of all doctors, really, be they the patient or be they the treating practitioner of, oh, gosh, what if I'm going to have to report someone? So I think it's really important at the get-go to really talk around the threshold for mandatory notifications and where we get um, – where we need to take action based on a sort of health matter. Because at the end of the day, the threshold for mandatory notifications, despite all their hype – is extremely high. So when it comes to matters relating to health, what we need to make mandatory notifications about is if we think someone has a health-related impairment where there is a substantial risk of harm to the public by that doctor continuing to practice or if they've got a, a substance misuse problem that is showing up. So I think we need to come back to that question, though, of what is an impairment, because impairment obviously gets used in medicine in a lot of different ways and means a lot of different things to different people. In the regulatory sense, it's defined in our legislation that governs how we handle complaints. And I'm going to read it so I don't get it wrong. <laughs> uh, impairment, it says, in relation to a person means the person has a physical or mental impairment, disability, condition or disorder, including substance abuse or dependence, that detrimentally affects or is likely to detrimentally affect a practitioner's capacity to practice the profession. 
putting that into English, what we're usually looking at is, is there a problem here that is impacting someone's ability to practice? And the questions we might ask to answer that is, look, what is the problem for starters? And what's being done about it? So is the practitioner engaged in treatment for whatever this problem is? Do they have a good treating team around them? Do they have some insight into what the, you know, what the sort of limitations might be for them in terms of is this something that means I need to take some time off work or are they pushing through something that they perhaps shouldn't be? And so that's the real question that we have to get to. Now, if you follow that line of argument through, you can start to look at the types of things that us as the regulators are going to be concerned about and they really are conditions that are more severe and really are impacting judgment and insight and those are always going to be more serious mental health problems um, things that involve sort of more psychotic type features you know bipolar disorder with real manic episodes schizophrenia uh, schizoaffective disorders substance misuse drug or alcohol misuse and the other cognitive impairments If we sort of capture those ones, you then look at the much more common mental health concerns that most doctors at some point in their life might be facing, stress, burnout, anxiety, depression. It's extremely unlikely that any of those conditions are ever going to meet the threshold for the definition of impairment. And if they don't meet that threshold, not only will we not, we can't take action on those complaints. So to Put it into context, in any given year, we deal with about maybe 3,000 complaints. That was the number from the last reporting year. Only 68 of those were related to health. So it's a very small proportion, keeping in mind that that's over a profession that's 40,000 medical practitioners strong, right? So this is quite small amounts. If I run through an example of something that we received and would have had to take action about. We might have got a notification about a practitioner who had shown up to work under the influence of alcohol, had been confronted by the head of department and actually asked to do a breath test. The breath test blew a 0.2 or something scarily high. The practitioner was taken off the floor and, and asked to leave his shift for the day. Now, You can see the flow-on effect of that for a practitioner who's seeing patients in a demanding environment, for example, in an emergency department, that there's a real risk of harm to those patients and therefore we will need to take action on a complaint like that. On the flip side, we'll get complaints every now and again or notifications, say, for example, from individual practitioners who, when they're filling in their annual return, sort of looked at the question about impairment, weren't quite sure if they should say yes or no and said yes and said, yes, I've got depression, I'm under the care of my GP and a psychologist, I'm using an SSRI and everything's fairly well controlled. We're not going to take action on a complaint like that. The one challenge, though, that comes up for us is that often we've got quite limited information in a notification and obviously the council does have an obligation, first and foremost, to ensure that the public is protected. And so that might mean then that we're going to need some sort of independent assessment of that practitioner to determine if we need to take any other steps. Cognitive impairment is one of those things that's often around it. We we recognise it after the fact rather than in the moment that people's behaviours are changing and one of the things again coming back to this idea of objective healthcare it's Mm. about knowing when someone is changing and I know I've looked after quite a number of patients who are who are later in their medical careers and that's a real challenge you know we Mm. we think about it as what is your risk of harm and of serious harm to others even though 
everything else in your life is normal and you're physically capable of doing your job, but that in the moment we often need to know that your cognitive ability is at its highest level so that you can deliver you know, safe, appropriate clinical care. Mm. And I think cognitive impairment is certainly a real challenge in the regulatory space and it's going to be a growing one. Obviously, we have an ageing workforce and we know that these problems are going to arise. And they do come to us, like you said, sometimes from a treating practitioner who might be concerned and make a notification. Equally, we get quite a lot of um, cognitive impairment matters come to us through sort of a kind of a roundabout way that there might have been complaints made about these doctors for performance concerns. They've misprescribed, they've communicated poorly with a with a patient and, and down the line as we go, we've, um, we've identified that there could be a cognitive impairment. It probably is a good example to look at how the council assesses those health problems because when we get those uh, notifications made to us, usually the, the outcome with those is that we'll organise a council-directed health assessment. Um, that's an independent health assessment that we arrange for that practitioner. And usually in cognitive impairment questions, we're talking about a neuropsychological assessment. Anyone who's had the luxury of reading one of those reports, they're extremely dense. They're very detailed reports using a lot of different tools. So it's not just a matter of, oh, I think they're impaired. It's a very specific process that the doctor undergoes. Based on the findings of that, it may well be that the assessor does consider that the practitioner does have a cognitive impairment. And what happens next is that that comes back to the council for some decisions on what needs to happen next. If we're concerned about an impairment, a health impairment, the next process in our step is something called an impaired registrants panel um, or an IRP, which is a, a hearing where we go through this. And those hearings are held by a panel of two um, hearing members, one of whom is always a doctor. And they're very, very well-trained hearing members who do this work almost exclusively to look at, look, what are the issues here? How is this impacting your ability to practice or is it? And is there some sort of step we need to take to just kind of contain things? And so it might well be that they say, no, everything's fine and no action happens, but it might be that they think conditions on the registration of that practitioner are necessary, usually to just um, show that they need to have engagement with a treating team. Or perhaps it might be that we just need to protect the practice in a little way to make it easier. So perhaps it's about restricting the number of patients that a doctor might see or the hours that a doctor might work or making sure that they're working with another practitioner present or something like that. So there's a number of different steps that we would go through to consider, look, what do we need to do here to make practitioners safe? Because whilst our mandate is always the protection of the public, our secondary kind of aim with the health program is keeping practitioners in practice as long as they're safe to do so. Um, and we have no intention of trying to remove practitioners from practice just for the sake of it. This is the area that I think lots of people get quite nervous about as well. Mm. The entirety of practising as a doctor has been somewhat predicated on your cognitive ability. Mm. That's how you end up here. That's how you work a long career because you are constantly learning, you are constantly applying that knowledge, you are looking at it in novel situations, being cognitively sharp is key to that. Mm. Because also the work that you do is often the sharpest requirement of your cognitive skills, mm. it's the place where sometimes things can be picked up earlier, that in the rest of your regular life there's no sense that this is at all a problem. Mm. 
And that's why it's hard for people to square the thinking between, but I'm fine in the rest of my life. And that's also why there are pathways to keep people practicing. Mm. There are things that are done and can be done to make sure that you continue to have a great practicing career. And we see this often from overseas and plenty of other places where we take people off things as they go along. They're no longer on the on-call roster to start with because that's Mm. the hardest time to be cognitively sharp when you're also sleep deprived. Then we look at what they do in terms of their day-to-day practice. And then, you know, we keep them as part of a team where they're supported, but also where they've got colleagues that they can turn to for discussions about patients. Those things actually protect the individual, they protect the public, they keep the collegiality of medicine together because that's what we're also supposed to do. We're supposed to look out for one another Mm. uh, and looking out for one another is part of the philosophy of also looking out for the patient. And I think it really, to bring it back around, it really speaks to the benefit of having your own doctor who knows you and can see what's happening for you so that some of those concerns when they arise you can kind of address early but also exactly like you said redirecting and looking at other ways of of doing practice I think it's a good time to sort of put a plug in for liaising with your indemnity insurer medical indemnity insurers are very aware of issues around transitioning from 100% active patient facing clinical practice into a different pattern of practicing and there doesn't have to be a problem for you to call up your MII you know getting in touch with them and seeing what they've got to say about certain things is a really useful thing to do because they also look after thousands and thousands of individuals I would generally say to anyone listening that this is not the first time they will have come across these issues I know for the individual it often feels both incredibly personal but also incredibly novel Mm. that things aren't quite the same as they anticipated them to be as they progressed along in their career but because we are a well-governed and well-organized practice there's actually a lot of experience with doing Mm. this we shouldn't immediately think that a problem will always result in a significant action it will often result in some simple changes that Mm -hmm. allow us to continue practicing and do so in a way that takes a huge mental burden off us as well to because we know that we're safer and that we're supported and that it's not a secret we're keeping from people because we we think something's wrong all right michael so let's think about what we can do to look after ourselves and prevent these problems from arising. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts, both as a treating doctor, but as a doctor patient yourself? What what sort of things do you think about when you think about self-care? I was talking with a surgeon friend of mine last night, and the way we break up our year is actually really important to us. You know, we always say you should be thinking about the planning of the next holiday mm-hmm. when you're on the current one. You know, you're, you've got something to look forward to. And the years that we do in medicine are often incredibly challenging. And I, I think only mm-hmm. of the last few years we've just come through. I had patients I was seeing, but colleagues that I knew who were regularly still working till two or three in the morning. You know, they mm-hmm. were absolutely overwhelmed by the complexity of the regular clinical care plus the COVID increase to that over time, the interactions there. Those things made life really hard. Now, in that, you still have to be able to create some boundaries. We still have to think about where we keep the things that we love doing, the things that recharge us. You know, mm. I, I play tennis on a Wednesday night. You know, the reason I do it on a Wednesday night is because that's when there's good time for me to do it. Mm. 
the ability to think about your year not just as another year of work but a, as a year of and a set of personal experiences is mm. is also really good what am i doing for myself what am i doing for my family you know how am i interacting with my friends because otherwise you get to september or october and you realize you haven't seen anyone in months and that kind of meta structure to your year around what am i doing this week what am I doing this month? What am I doing this quarter? You know, what am I doing maybe this term if I'm a, a doctor in training you know, and I'm having to rotate? How am I thinking about the unique circumstance I'm in at the moment and fitting in some of those things and also recognising that fitting in those things, I have to make some choices. There are times when I'm in the lead up to a, an exam, whether I'm a medical student or as a doctor in training, where some of those things are going to be naturally prioritised down because of the focus there. Mm. But reinvigorating your life with those things once exams are over or once you've pushed past a particularly busy period of the year takes active planning. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just happen. Like we don't just magically find ourselves in a cricket team on a Saturday (laughs) morning. We have to think about, well, at that part of the year, I'm going to want to be re-engaging with my local cricket club. I'm going to want to be going back to art classes. I'm, you know, I'm going to want to be, because the days are longer now, I'm going to want to be finding time to get a run in either in the morning mm-hmm. or at night. And and that actually takes a little bit of forward planning and thinking, but it's so beneficial for how we then approach our working life. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Michael. I'm sure you've got lots of patients to see in your practice today. But before you go, have you got any final tips for us as we've been talking about these issues? Remember that you're human in all of this, that we are imperfect and prone to a bit of breakdown over time. And because of that, having someone to be a regular part of our life who is a you know, another professional, another doctor is actually the best investment you can make in living a long, healthy, productive life and with that a long, healthy career. Most of us get into this because we love the idea of being medical practitioners. I'm going to do everything in my life to try and keep doing that for as long as I'm able to and and still love what I do. And finding someone to help you on that pathway is great. You know, My GP who works in Erskineville, he's fantastic. But it took me a while to find him. And so not giving up, if you don't quite find the person you want, you can. You can go and find someone because just like anyone, find a second opinion, get someone else, work your way through things until you find someone who you want to build a relationship with uh, as your GP. The other part is in all of this, what people worry about is often the things that they recognise and have insight into. If you've got insight, it usually means that you are actually a very well member of our community and seeking care is actually a really good thing for you. The problems come when we push things down or push them away and they grow and grow and grow and they overwhelm us in terms of our ability to practice safely, constructively, effectively. And that's the thing we don't want these problems to build up we want to deal with them just like we would ask of anyone else in their life deal with it at the lowest possible level deal with it at the simplest possible phase and if we do that then you know we go on to have these great careers and as a treating practitioner myself knowing that being able to open the door to someone and welcome them into our world is a real 
privilege as a practitioner. I, I love looking after other doctors and I recognise that making it safe and easy for them is often even more important because of some of the cultural barriers and the things that people overlay onto their clinical practising careers that makes them worried about coming to see a doctor. You're absolutely right, Michael. And I think just to touch on the other takeaway from today is that mandatory notifications, the threshold for making one around someone's health is extremely high and does have to involve an impairment that is causing or likely to cause a risk to the public. So keep that in mind when we're considering what we want to disclose to our treating practitioners. Dr. Michael Bonning, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Penelope. I'm Dr. Penelope Elix, the Medical Director at the Medical Council of New South Wales. Thanks for listening. For more information on any of the content in this podcast, you can access further resources by clicking on the description button located right here on your podcast player. Or you can contact the Medical Council of New South Wales via their website, mcnsw.org.au. You can also subscribe and hear more podcasts from the Medical Council of New South Wales via Podbean, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. The Medical Council of New South Wales acknowledges the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past and present.